0: Great. So uh, my title is uh, The Sword of the Gospel, um, and I just want to challenge you to to get up and fight. So if you're feeling um, a little sensitive uh, this evening, uh, I'm sorry, I I want to rattle your cage, uh, but I also want to to stir you and encourage you uh, to believe God. Uh, And if you're in a church plant, you better believe God, because you can look around and say, okay, you know, you get to a big church, or you get to a church gets to a size of 100, 150. You say, "Well, we got a building, we have got some money in the bank, we've got a lot of people," and you can easily stop believing God. You can start trusting your resources. But when you're at this level, you better believe God. You better say, "If God doesn't come through for us, we're 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 in a bit of a hole here, and this is probably not a good idea." And so I want to fill you with faith that God can do what he's promised to do. And I want you to feel like, whether you, however you're a very sensitive, a feminine lady, or whether you feel like, you know, I'm like Johnny, and oh, you know, man, I'm like Paul, oh, come on. You know, whatever you feel your disposition, I want you to feel ready for a fight. Uh, so the truth is, we are in a fight. Um, I think it was quoted at our advance conference all the time, so I may as well quote it again. The Christian uh, life is not like a battle. It is a battle. So when you read stories in the Old Testament about battles, it may not feel very politically correct about kind of fighting and killing people and swords and stuff, but the truth is you are in a battle. And this situation that we find the... the um, the the Israelites and their classic enemies, the Philistines, or the Philistines, if you're from the United States, uh, you know, that's their classic enemies, and they're in a corner. The Israelites find themselves in a corner. So we read at the beginning the kind of odds. So in in verse 13, verse 5, it says the Philistines assemble to fight Israel. This is the odds. 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and they didn't even bother to count the soldiers. Soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And then what happened was, the Israelites, they, they've got about 3,000, we'll read that. There's, it, gets, it whittles down to about 600, and they've got two swords. So what is their reaction when they feel this pressure? Their reaction is, it says, they, they hid away. And they basically find anywhere, you know, pits, cisterns, sewage pipes, you know, rocks, caves. They, they basically would find anywhere that they could hide away. And I would say that if you're a Christian here today, that you will feel the temptation of, like, we are face, facing unassailable odds. I, I, I know that, that, that compared to the, to, to the mainland, I know that Belfast is, has got more churches and more Christians, but basically you're still seriously outnumbered. You are seriously outnumbered. You know, and I, it was 10 years since I was last in Belfast, uh, the reality is this, this, this nation has, has got more secular... It's not got more Christian. The reality is the odds against you are incredibly stacked. And the temptation you might have is to say, well, I'm just going to duck and hide. I'm going to run for cover. Uh, and that is so easy to do. You think the odds against us, so you might be in a school or a workplace or whatever, and somebody says, what do you believe about that? It's usually about sexuality these days, but it could be about anything. What do you believe about that? And your temptation is, how am I going to respond to that situation? I'm just going to keep my head down. I'm just going to hide away. And the reality is, you find that the Philistines, uh, the Israelites, feel the that, uh, that challenge so much that they're hiding away. Here's a quote from Tim Thornbury, who uh, works for the Good Book Company but also writes on the Gospel Coalition. He said this The enemy would love us to shut up about Jesus, he would love us to think that the world hates us and that people will bite off our heads if we dare to mention Jesus to them. My word, I'm not going to invite them to the carol service. You know, I, I, that we've got this alpha course, or we've got this course to find out about Jesus. No, 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 no. You know, I've got far too much to lose. They may, I don't want to do that. The enemy would say, don't do that. He'd love us to have a bunker mentality in churches where we cut, off, cut ourselves off from relating to the world. And I would suspect that even, even, and I don't know this place, so I'm not saying this with prejudice, you could drive up and down that Omar Road and you could find churches that are doing church... But the reality is it feels so difficult to do church in a, in a world that, that doesn't like Christians. They'll just close it all down. We'll go through our Sunday meeting. We'll do our thing. And there's less and less people coming. And, and the age and the population uh, in the church is getting older and older. And it's just, we'll just Closed down because it's too scary. It's too scary to push out. Uh, we, the, 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 the enemy would love us to have a bunker mentality in churches where we cut ourselves off from relating to the world. Where we buy into the media, and when we buy into a media-fueled mentality which says everybody hates us, we're much more likely to stay in the cozy security of our fellowships and fail to reach out with the gospel of hope. That is a huge temptation. So that's what happens. We've got small groups in God First that we always want to say to them, "Look, you need to be reaching out with the gospel of Jesus." And it's almost like the little kind of little indicator goes back and says, "No, no, no. We just need more time to be loving and eat meals together." And you say, "Come on, reach out with the gospel of Jesus!" And they, no, no, no. We just need time for discipleship and loving each." Other. And it's like you constantly because it's natural. You feel I don't want to stick my neck out. You know, you hear about bakers in this town who stick their neck out, you know? You hear about nurses who wear crosses and say, can I pray for you? You lose your job. It's a dangerous world out there, you know, as they said in The, the, the Hobbits. You know, it's, you better step out of your door. It's dangerous. And if you're a Christian and you're going to live an engaged Christian life, it's a scary world. You know, in education, health, whatever you're in, it's a scary world. And the truth is the church feels like it's melting away. This is a, a newspaper headline from some years back now because uh, you can tell by it was Archbishop Carey, but basically he said, and this is like my word, panic, the church is on the brink of extinction. You know, and here's the graph, here's the graph, here's a 1.2 million people attending, this is at the Church of England, and look at what's going to happen, look at where we are, this is 2010, look at what's happening, you know, less and less, the church is basically, it, it, we're on the back foot, and it says that the Israelites were held, hiding in caves, melting away. And so we face a grave situation. And not only is there, are they scared and hiding and melting away, they've got no weapons. But it says actually in, uh, in uh, verse, thir- verse 19, it says, Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole of land of Israel, because the Philistines have said, otherwise the Hebrews would make swords and spears. So the Israelite went down to the Philistines to, uh, to pay to have their plowshares and mattocks, and it gives you a price list if you want your goad, Sharpening, whatever, and it says so on the day of the battle. Not a soldier with Saul or Jonathan had a sword or a spear. There's two swords. So there's thousands and thousands of enemies and two swords. You think this? Let's just stop now. This is not going to end well. Let's just stop now. But the truth is. That they had, a, it feels like the world has all the weapons. So I don't know if you saw in the last election, that the, I, I won't tell you what party I vote for. Not the one in power, I'm sorry. But, uh, <laughs> oh, I just did. Uh, but the liberal party, the guy who led the liberal party, a guy called Tim Farron, is an evangelical Christian. All they wanted to ask him was what? You can tell me at this point. What do you think about gay marriage? Not like, what do you think about Brexit? What do you think about this? What what do you think about gay marriage? And they pressed him and pressed him. He dodged and weaved. He kind of hid a little bit in the cave in the ground. He thought, whoa. And he just, in the end, after he'd just had enough, he said this. He said, to be a political leader and a committed Christian felt impossible. In other words, you can't live out there as a committed Christian in this world with all the opposition. It feels like the enemy's got all the weapons. I just quit. Trevin Wax, American guy, said this. We we are in a moral revolution in which long-standing beliefs in our culture are being turned upside down. As expressive individualism. I wish I had time to unpack that for you. spreads and becomes a dominant worldview in the world. Basic Christian teachers are now considered not only old-fashioned, it's like when I was a kid, you know, I'm born in 1960, old-fashioned. Not just problematic. I've got some questions about evolution and science. Now... You're extreme and heretical. You know where they used to burn witches? Churches burnt witches. You know, I'm not saying that was the right thing. Now, you say, I, I've got this view on gay marriage, like Tim Fallon, you'll be burned. It feels like they're, the world has all the weapons. And what happens is that the, 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 the Israelites had to go to the Philistines to get sharp. I think it's really interesting. They had to go at the Philistines to get sharp. Uh, um, and there's almost like the temptation is okay, the, the, the world is really against us. What we need to do is we need to learn from the world to get better at doing what we do. And I'm not saying, you know, we've got a data projector, it's pretty modern, and, you know, and we'll have a website. And it's, I'm not saying that. But there's a temptation to say what we need to do is to, because the world is winning, they must have the right answers. We've got to become like them. A guy in 2008 in the Sunday Times. Uh, Matthew Parish, uh, he's not—he's an atheist. Uh, uh, He's—he would say, you know, I'm, I'm a, a long way from being a Christian. But he said this, and I think it's really interesting. T- this is about the idea of shall we go and become like the world? You know, let's blend in with the world, and it's fine. He said this in 2008. I think it's so profound. It said, "It is time that convinced Christians stop trying to reconcile their spiritual beliefs with the modern age." Now, I'm not saying, just you know, dress up in old-fashioned medieval clothes and do medieval-style meetings and what I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying is, well, maybe if the world finds, you know, our view on marriage a little bit difficult, hey, let's just move that one. Maybe if if the church finds our view on sin a little bit difficult, we'll, we'll just move that one. That's what he's saying is, it's time that convinced Christians, stop trying to reconcile the belief to the modern age and understand that if one thing comes clearly through every account we have of Jesus' teaching, that his followers are urged not, are not urged to accommodate themselves with this age, but into the mind of God. And he says, inclusive, moderate and sensible Christianity is inching its way up a philosophical cul-de-sac. The, world, the church stands for revealed truth and divine inspiration, or it stands for nothing. In other words, the answer is not just to become more like the world. The answer is you've got to say, we've, we've only got one sword. This is the answer. So, the, so my, my, um, my title's called the, the Sword of the Gospel, so it gives you away. But basically there's one sword. We used to play this game. I'm going to get my Bible actually to so wave it around. It's too, in fact, I'm in a bit of a different situation with my Bible because my eyes are so bad <laughs> that I'd need to have a huge Bible to be able to read it. So this is very good for waving around. <laughs> but actually, I read it on my iPad, but it'll work. You know, we, used to <coughs> we used to play this, play this game. One game, when we were kids, at Sunday school, we used to play this called the the, the sword drill. I don't know if any of you used to do that, if you went to Sunday school when you were young. And you'd put your arm under your shoulder and you'd say, unsheathe your sword. This is taking some of you back and others are thinking, did you do that? It's crazy. And then we'd say this, we'd say, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. And then they'd shout out a Bible verse and it was the first one to get there and read it. Man, I was good. I didn't know my Bible, but I was competitive. (laughs) You know, I was good. And it, but it taught me this, that this is, this is a sword. You know, and, it, and the Bible says that. It says that in Ephesians 6, it says, Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In other words, it's talking about what happens when you feel under attack. You could do a whole sermon series on it about shields of faith. You know, uh, you, you could do you know, feet, gospel feet, whatever. But there's this thing as the sword of the Spirit. There's something about this one weapon that's the offensive one. All the others are kind of fairly defensive But there's this one weapon, and it's supposed to be it's it's there to take up. It's part of the armour of God. Hebrews four says the the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. I uh, the first time I preached this sermon, um, uh, a friend of mine had an actual Lord of the Rings sword. I don't know if you you can't really quote Lord of the Rings any uh, these days, can you? Because someone goes like, "What? I don't watch that film." But basically, he had a proper Lord of the Rings sword, and he, 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 he pulled it out. And I don't know if you've seen that bit where Aragon is like, they make the remake the sword, don't they? The sword that was broken is remade, and they're banging it and all this. And then he takes the sword, and it's like this, whoa, this massive sword, and it's like shaking. And they say to him, take up the sword of the king, become who you're born to be. I think it should be in the Bible. It should be in the Bible. So I'm putting it in the Bible. But basically, if, I've, if you only remember one thing, it's like, take up the sword of the king, become who you were born to be. Because either you can hide away or duck down or compromise, or you can say, no, we still believe this sword can win. We still believe this gospel can change life. We still believe that we can do that. And this is who you're born to be. If you're a Christian, you're born to do this. You're born to believe this gospel about Jesus. uh, Kevin DeYoung uh, wrote this uh, about Easter Sundays. But I think it's relevant in our says, Let's not trade the glories of the cross for a mess of religious niceties, spiritual ambiguities and moral uplift. You know, you go. I'm not, I'm not here to dig at other churches, but the reality is some churches think, well, I just want a nice sermon that's going to make me feel good on a Sunday. You know, and you're just telling me I'm surrounded by enemies and I've got no chance. No, that's not very nice, isn't it? Or, you know, we'll just have some spiritual ambiguities. We're not quite sure what it means, but it, you know, it, it, it feels like it's this nice sort of thing you're supposed to say in church. It says it's time to tell the old, old story once again. The story of sin atoned for. Wrath appeased, that's about God's righteous judgment, sorting out the mess in the world, heaven secured and death conquered. I'm not against these things, but no gimmicks, no trinkets, no goofy skits and video clips. We use video clips sometimes at God First, I'm sorry. He says the gospel is good enough all by itself. And I think that, I'm preaching it to myself, you have to believe. That the truth of this book, the story it tells about Jesus, is enough. We've got to believe that because otherwise, if we don't believe it, then we're just going through the motions. So that's the situation. The weapons are, we've got one weapon, we've got to believe God. And the situation is really, really bad because it says, I'm going to jump a couple of slides here, but it says that actually, no, oh, actually, we'll read it. Sorry, I'll read it. It says, 1 Samuel 14, verse 1, you've got it there. It says, One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young army, so he's got one sword, Come, let's go to the Philistine outpost on the other side, but he did not tell his father. His father was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree. No one was aware that Jonathan the left. On each side of the pass, Jonathan intended to cross, to reach the Philistine outpost with a cliff. And he said, come on, let's go over to the outposts of those uncircumcised men. The bottom line is, if you're a Christian, you have to go. You've got to go. You've got to say, I'm going to face the reality that we've got to go. We've got to actually make a move. So Jesus says, doesn't it, that when he's ascended into heaven, go into all the world. You've got to go. Isaiah, I've got got it down there, but basically Isaiah, when Isaiah hears the gospel that his sin is taken away, that Christ has died on on the cross, his sin is atoned for, I believe it's in there, he says, whom's going to go for me, whom can I send? And the answer is... Say it for me. Oh, not me. Not me. Not me. But when you hear the gospel, you, you, that, that's the next response. It's not like, hey, oh great, I've got saved. Let's chill. I found a nice community I can eat with and hang out with. It's like, no, you've got to go. And he says, then God says, go. And Jonathan Says to his armor, come on, let's go. But his dad, in contrast, is out of the game. He's under the pomegranate tree. And I, I feel like, man, sometimes I'm under the pomegranate tree. In other words, he's just resting under the tree. He's basically saying, there's nothing going to happen. It can't be done. We can't win. We can't plan a church. We can't change Belfast. Uh, you know, We can't see God transforming. Let's just sit under the tree. Martin Luther King Jr., who faced incredible odds when it came to uh, you know, the oppression of uh, blacks in, in the United States. So, like Who can change that nation? You know, for years and years and years, they've been under what was basically apartheid. He said, let's, let's believe God. The ultimate measure of a man or woman is not whether where he or she stands in the moment of comfort, but where he or she stands in the time of challenge. Folks, this is a time of challenge. Cheltenham, my place where I live—it's a place of comfort. It wants to draw you in and sit you on your sofa under the pomegranate tree, watching Leeds United on Sky Sports. You know, that's what I want to do. I just want to. Oh. And we're not to be there. Francis Chan said this: "Our greatest fear should not be uh, our greatest fear should not be of failure." But of succeeding in life at the things that don't really matter. My uncle is 90 years old, he's not a Christian. He succeeded in life and he's about to die, and he's realizing for all my money and all my impact in the city of London, I've succeeded in life in the things that don't matter. And he says to me, and he says to my wife, he's a little bit, uh, he keeps repeating himself because his dementia is kicking in. He just says, you know, there's just something about you guys. What is it about you guys? And he's realising he's succeeded in life at the things that don't matter. And we are here to succeed in the things that really matter. And you might fail, but you will not feel all that God has called you to do if you just sit on your sofa. I wrote this. You're under the pomegranate tree if your faith has dwindled. In other words, you stop believing God. Your desire to pray that once burned brightly has become a flicker of empty duty or extinguished completely. Your gospel sword lays unused by your side. For, For many it's been too long since you reached out with the gospel of Jesus to someone else. And I'm not saying this to make you feel bad, I'm just saying we can find ourselves easily under the pomegranate tree. If the King Saul can do it, we can easily find ourselves. I can look around my church and say, who's going to invite people to the carol service? Have I got anyone to invite? Maybe one, maybe two. Oh, but somebody else is going to do it. Somebody else is going to do it. And you're hoping somewhere in your church that there's a Jonathan, because we can easily be the soul church under the pomegranate tree. You can do it when you're you can do it when you're 20. You can do it when you're 200. You can do it when you're 2,000. So Jonathan is a different kind of character. I love this. You know, it should be on. It's on a Christ, It should be on Christian tea towels, shouldn't it? Uh, maybe the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving whether by many or few. I want you to read that with me. Maybe, read it, the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. In, in the Hebrew, nothing means nothing. It means there's nothing. If God wants to work, nothing can stop Him. We sing a song, you might sing it in your, in your church. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? The Lion and the Lamb. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? And the answer is? No one. Nothing. But we think, I can think of 25 different reasons that could stop the Lord Almighty. And we sit under the pomegranate tree. But D- Jonathan says, I believe God. And actually, it's really interesting. All he gets is a maybe. Maybe the Lord will act on our behalf. We're going to plant a church. Maybe the Lord will act on our behalf. We're gonna. We want to see the, the gospel change lives. Maybe God will uh, act on our behalf. We want to make disciples. Maybe the Lord will act on our behalf. But actually, that's good enough for most guys. So if you're if you're married, um, most guys, when you ask the girl to date you, uh, or, or even to marry, there's a story that David and Marion will tell you, but I can't tell you now. Uh, about you know you're asking. It's like all you get is a maybe. Yeah? I know guys like a sure thing. So my, my mate Jonathan, not Jonathan in this story, but my mate Jonathan, he was like, this girl really fancied him and he really fancied this girl. And I think, for goodness sake, ask her out. Oh, what she says now. For goodness sake, ask her out. What she says now. In the end, she had to have her friends text. She had to text Jonathan and say, please, will you ask me out? I'll say yes. And then he asked her out. They're married now and they're doing fine. <laughs> but, you know, guys, we, you know, if you like a girl, you just think, well, maybe, yeah? And that's, and that's fine, and you do that in life, but when it comes to the gospel, you think, well, I need a sure thing. I'm only going to ask that person to the carol service if they first fall on their knees before me and say, what must I do to be saved? And that'll be my sign that they need to be asked to the carol service. You know, that's a sure thing. They're definitely coming then. So I've got this guy who I play golf with and I ask him all the time and he just says, no, I'm not interested. And I, can I keep asking him? And he's like, no, I'm not interested. Because maybe, maybe one time he'll say yes. But it's not just about inviting to services, it's about gospel conversations. Maybe the Lord will work in our behalf. Here's, here's Hudson Taylor, who's a Yorkshire man, so I love him deeply, who went to China when the odds in China were stacked against him. So few Christians. All the Christians were hiding in. In Shanghai, in their nice little mission statements, eating nice food on the sitting on their pom, under their pomegranate trees, and he said, I'm gonna go and dress up like a Chinese and tell the Chinese about Jesus. And he says this, I thought, oh Lord help me. It's old fashioned language. Want of trust is at the root of almost all our sins and all our weaknesses. How shall we escape it by looking, but by looking unto him, Jesus, and observing his faithfulness? All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on him being with them. Oh, beloved friends, if there is a living God, faithful and true, let's hold to his faithfulness. Let us not give him a partial trust, but daily, hourly, serving, counting on his faithfulness. We so easily forget that God is with us. God is with us. If God is with us, nothing could stop him. And we need to believe God is with us. You might think I'm not equipped. I'm not here. You know, there's loads of Bible stories. You know, Gideon, I'm just useless. I'm just the second class, second best, no good, clever. I'm not a clever guy like David. You know, I'm just whatever. And you rule yourself out. But actually, God wants to rule you in and say, God is with you, mighty warrior. God is with you. What happens? He says to his, so Jonathan says, come on, let's see what God will do. I don't know what that looks like for you. What, let's see what God will do. And he says to his friend, his armour bearer, come on. And what does the armour bearer say? He just says, you know, I've got a number of reasons why actually in a secular society that's not going to work. I've got a number of reasons why actually it's not the right time, they're not the right place, we don't have the money, we don't have the right publicity, we don't have all of that. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, do all that is in your heart, go ahead, I'm with you, heart and soul. I pulled it the disciples' heart. The reality is when your leader or when your friend in Christ says, let's try this, your response is, let's try it. Let's do it. Let's do it. I had a guy who worked with me in Manchester. We implanted the church in Manchester. Every time I said, let's try it, he always said, I can give you reasons why it won't work. And in the end, I said to Hayden, I just don't need you in this, I just don't need you in this team. Because every time I say let's do it, you give me reasons why it doesn't work. I just want to say you to say, well, let's have a go. The worst that can happen is that it doesn't work. The worst that can happen is you can look a fool. The worst that can happen is your friends might tell you to get stuffed. But the best that can happen is God might work on our behalf and save a few. I wrote this, faith is learnt by fighting your battles alongside people of faith. It's not learnt in meetings. So you don't learn faith by listening to me. I might stir faith, but you learn faith by going and doing. It's not learnt in committees, Lord help us in churches. It's not even learnt in meals together. It's learnt in meals together where somebody says, shall we go and leaflet our street? Shall we start a kids club? There's a lady in our church. I need to watch the time because I've got a plane to catch. There's a lady in our church that says, let's, let's do a kids club. Let's do a toddler group. And I said, go ahead. I'm with your heart. And so let's do it. So she finds a hall. She gets a bunch of people. She runs it. She's got mums coming, mums coming, mums coming. the cat fit them all in. And then guess what happens is somebody comes from that toddler group, comes to church and gets saved. Donnie Griggs, who, who's part of Advance, who wrote a book called Small Town Jesus, he said, guys, you need to have a try culture You guys need to have a try culture You just can't do the same things over and over and hope it's going to change. If it's not working, try something else. Try something else. Faith is learnt in those let's go moments. Hello. That ultimate expression of biblical community on... You coming in? Go bring him in, Paul. We'll see him saved. So here's the thing. I need to move fast. So Jonathan says, come on, let's go. His arm says, I'm with your heart and soul. Let's move it. Let's move it. Let's move it. Jonathan's tactic is really obvious. Let's read it in verse 8. Uh, He says, come on then, we'll cross over towards them and let them see us. That's a stupid tactic in war, isn't it? We're going across, let's keep undercover and sneak into the camp. But actually what he says is, let's go up there and let them see us. You know, there's 30,000 of them. There's a whole bunch of them hanging on this cliff. You coming in? We're doing church, come on. Okay? He says, come and let them see us. Let them see us. And we need to do that. We need to do that. I mean, you, I, I, I'm not going to read it, but Jesus says, you're the light of the world. You know what it says, don't you? you? went to Sunday school. Do not put your light under a stand. but Do not put it under a bowl, but stick it on a stand. People have got to see you. Peter says, uh, uh, well, I Jesus. No, Jesus says, Afterwards, he said, do not put it on a a bowl. Instead, put it on a stand. It gives lights to everyone. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The people have got to let them see you. Uh, Tim Chester and Steve Timmis wrote this in their book, Everyday Church. It's not simply that ordinary Christians live good lives that enable them to invite their friends to evangelistic events. Our lives are evangelistic events. I like that view. Our lives are evangelistic events. The way you live your life is an invitation to follow Jesus. Our life together is an apologetic, it's a reason why it's true. As ordinary, unassuming individuals, that would be you lot and me, doing nothing more spectacular than being good neighbours, but but over a few years, they are building credibility in their community through simply being the neighbours everybody wants to have. We have not seen miraculous fruit in our community, but we are working. Our, we are believing for our neighbours, aren't we, we We're believing for our neighbours. So we had a bonfire a few weeks ago, and like for the first time, our neighbours came. And we thought oh, it's an amazing breakthrough. Our neighbours came. One of them were new neighbours on the street, and they spoke, banged on the, they they'd spoke to the person that lives next door, and they said, "How do you get to know people on this street?" And they said, "You need to go down." They called me Warren, so they didn't know me that well. You need to go down and knock on Howard's and Naomi's door because they know everybody on this street. They've always got people around their house. So they came, didn't they? And they had a chat with somebody from our church about Jesus. And they weren't scared, they weren't freaked out. And I'm thinking, we, you know, I wish it was more spectacular. I wish it was more dramatic. I wish that he was, you know, he was walking down the street and my shadow fell upon him and he suddenly got saved. But actually, we're just trying to be good neighbours. We're just trying to let them see us. Just going to say quickly in this before we keep going. The, 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 the thing is, that's a rock climb. Evangelism is a rock climb. I don't know if anybody's ever been rock climbing. Has anybody been rock climbing? Oh, you're nodding. You radicals there, Susie. Been rock climbing. The rea- if you've been rock climbing, it's a dangerous... It's a dangerous game, isn't it? You know, okay, you can get roped up and feel like this, but the reality is, evangelism and church planting is a rock climb. Jonathan, his armor bearer, had to go and climb this cliff. So it says, let's climb up. Let's climb up. You know, basically, you get this situation where you think, okay, we're 20 people, we've got this venue, but we need to reach for the next thing, you know, and you're hanging on by your fingertips, and it's a rock climb, and you think, we might fall off. Guys, it is a rock climb. Just it's not a coach ride, it's a rock climb. And you will feel like that. You'll feel at times like, man, we're gonna fall off. It feels like dangerous doing evangelism with your friends and being a it's a rock climb. You think you're hanging by your fingertips, it's not gonna work. But this is a rock climb. Sometimes there are pl- times when it's easier. There's times, you know, that if you find people that are like you, that it's easier. But the reality is, if you want to reach the streets down the back here, this is a rock climb. If you want to reach across the road into Catholic neighborhoods, that is a serious rock climb. And that's okay. But you need to say, okay, this is, we understand what we're undertaking. Idealism goes out the window when you're rock climbing. You know, you, you need to think and focus on every handhold, every move. And you have to say, can I do this? But God wants you to climb, whatever, whether it's mountains or mohuls, it's a rock climb. And then a couple of things just to finish is, how do you know God, how do you know it's working? How do you know God's favours with you? They say this really interesting thing, don't they? They say, come on, let let them see us. If they say, come up to us and we'll give you a good kicking, that's basically what they say is, that's a sign that God is with us. Now, there's loads of churches who say, now the sign that God is with you is you're going to have a nice car, and you're going to have a nice community world, and you're going to have all these lovely things happening to you. That's the sign that God's with you. Now, I'm going to tell you they're not telling you the truth. The sign that God's with you is that you're going to get opposition. How do we know that? Because Jesus, God was with him, eh? He's very God, God from God, true God from God. He's very, did he face opposition? Did Paul face opposition? You know, he does that list. He says, I've got danger in the country, danger in this, you know, he's got like, danger in the country, danger in the city, danger in the fields, danger in the sea, danger in the rivers, danger here, danger from my countrymen, danger from my enemies, danger from the Catholics, danger from the Protestants, danger from the immigrants, danger from the And he's like, Whoa. Was God with him? He says, I've been I've been beaten up, I've been stoned, I've been put in prison. I'm not saying we want to sign up for that. I don't want to sign up for that. But the reality is sometimes the sign that you are on the right track is that you get opposition. If you stand under the pomegranate tree, no opposition. If you just meet in this building, no opposition. But if you let them see you, whatever way that is, you will face a pushback. But actually that is the strategy that God is with you. Jonathan says, if they say, come up, that's the sign that God has given them into our hands. And it feels counterintuitive. But I just want to encourage you, when it feels hard in the church plant, that's a sign that God's with you. And you think, oh, you're telling me lies? No. That's a sign that God's with you. When you think it's a rock climb, I'm not going to hang on, that's a sign that God's with you. The sign that God's with you is not that you sit under your sofa under the pomegranate tree. That's a sign that you've given up. A couple of things to finish and then we're done. Ultimately, this can all feel like a really motivational talk, it or unmotivational if if I'm not really working. (laughs) You know, come on, let's believe God. Come on, let's believe God. Come on, try harder. Come on, try harder. The ultimate one that we're following... He's not called Jonathan, he's called Jesus. And he says to us, and that changes the story, doesn't it? Because I don't know, you think I've got to be Jonathan in this story, you know, and say to my mate, come on, let's do submission." Actually, Jesus says to us, come on, Howard, come on, Foundation Church, let's go. And that changes everything. Imagine Jesus sitting next to you in your seat in your workplace and he's saying to you, come on David, let's go. Come on James, let's go. Come on Jenny, come on, let's go. It changes the dynamic. And actually, he's ascended the hill. You know, this, they have to go up to this hill to win the victory. It says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He's got clean hands and a pure heart. Well, there's only one of those. And that's Jesus. He has ascended the hill of the Lord. And he's faced opposition. Was God with him? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It feels like I'm, you know, I'm visible. I mean, he's naked in front of everyone. You know, let them see you. He's, he's lifted up, they say. high is lifted up. He's in the darkness. It feels like this is worse. Everything, the might of Rome and everything is stacked against him. All his friends abandon him. But he goes up to the hill. And wins the ultimate victory. says this in Hebrews. Let us throw off everything that hinders. Oh, it's so hard. And the sin that so easily entangles God. I don't believe you. And let us run with perseverance the road marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Because he's been there. The pioneer and effect of our faith. For the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. Scorning the mocking and the shame. And sat down at the right hand of God. Boom. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you don't, you don't grow weary and lose heart. God is committed to you not growing weary and losing heart. The answer is not advance. It's not guest speakers. It's not David. The answer is consider him who faced opposition from sinful men that you do not grow weary have given up and lose heart, have lost faith. no. Consider him, because he's ascended the hill, and we go and say, "Jesus, I'm with your heart and soul. Do whatever in your heart, Father. I'm with your heart and soul." So what happens is it's a victory, doesn't it? Now I'm not promising that if you go and invite your neighbour to the carol service, suddenly the whole of what's your town called, the place you're Kumba Cumber, Cumber, Cumber Patch. Come, you know, that if you invite your neighbour, that suddenly the whole of Combo is going to become a Christian. But actually, the reality is, sometimes, and I haven't got enough of these stories. If I was a proper Christian, I'd have better stories than this. I'm going to tell you one story that's too old. Too old but let me just read this and we're done. The Philistines fell before Jonathan. So they climb up. They let him show there's like two of them and a thousands, with one sword says, the armor bearer followed behind. I presume he had the sword. I don't know what Jonathan had. Maybe Jonathan's just said, come on. In that first attack, Jonathan's armor built, killed about 20 men in in an area of about half an acre. That's like your estate, or like four or five houses that you live in. says, then panic struck the whole army, and those in the camp and in the field, and those in the outposts, and the raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. The Philistine armies melted away, and what's happened is then the Israelite army says, Victory is here. Let's go. So Jesus has done that for us. But we need to step in. This is my best story. I've only got one. This is my best story. And then I'm done. I'll read one quote and I'm done. We gave out a leaflet on the street. Now he's heard this. She probably thinks, oh, I wish I had more stories. Lord, give me more stories. (laughs) We gave out this leaflet on the street in Manchester to this lady who was shopping. She didn't really do anything with it. She grunted and stuck it in her bag. You wouldn't have even, you know, when you came back, did you have any good conversations? Nobody would have said, well, we gave this to this lady and she stuck it in her bag. Nobody would have said that. She took the leaflet and put it on her mantle. Interesting. Her son's coming out of prison for armed robbery. And she says to him, you need to go to that church and get yourself sorted out. Now what had happened in prison was this guy had seen a, a, a light coming towards him and he heard a voice saying, Romans, I can't remember what it was, 9-11. If you believe in your heart, you probably know what the actual verse is. If you, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. And so he says, I believe, I believe, I believe. But he didn't really know what it was. She gives him the leaflet. A guy's preaching, my friend is preaching. There's about this many in the room. He comes in, sits on the side. The guy says, "Do you want to become a Christian?" The, the guy preacher says, "Do you want to become a Christian?" He came and knelt down at the front. Everybody else like, sat on their hands, like in true British style. We get with him, and he prays this most amazing prayer. He just was so ready to get saved. Now I think, well, that's a great story. A guy an armed robber got saved. He goes home and tells his mum. And over three or four months, his mum gets saved. And she'd had multiple partners, multiple kids with multiple dads. She'd suffering drunk, drink problems. She comes and gets saved. Then his brother, half-brother, he comes to church and says, I don't know what's happened to my, my brother, but something effing amazing's happened. And he comes to church and he gets saved. And then their friend, who lives next door, says, what's happened to the McGuinness family? And she gets saved. And then her friend and her other friend, then they came and one of them got saved and one of them didn't get saved. The guy now who'd never had a job, been in prison, he said to me, I can't stick a job. He he, he, He ended up getting married to a great girl in the church he, he, he got a degree in IT, he now works for the university, doing IT, and he's an elder in the, church in, uh, in the New Frontiers Church, as was in Blackpool. So every time I have a leaflet in my hand, I say, who knows what God will do? Nothing can stop the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. I long for that story. And I, I'm not telling it to look good because it's too long ago, Naomi, isn't it? It's too long ago. And I feel like, oh God, I'm going to pray. Father, we pray for just those moments where you suddenly, we're bold and we're brave. Whether it's a leaflet or a conversation and suddenly it's one and then another and then another and then suddenly it's 20 and half an acre. God, we pray, stir this Church to believe you, stir me, stir us, stir Johnny and his team to believe you for gospel advance. Let me finish with this quote. This is a kind of come on, let's fight, and then I really need to wrap up. This is William Booth, who started the Salvation Army. He started it in small halls like this. This is what he said Well, women weep as they do now. I'll fight. While little children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison in and out and in and out as they do now, I'll fight. While there's a drunkard left, while there's a poor lost girl upon the streets, while there remains one dark soul without a light of God, I'll fight. I'll fight to the very end. Father, we just pray, give us that sense of your stirring and moving us to believe you. I pray that you do something in this church, you do something in the churches of this nation, Lord, that they would stir us to believe you. With the one sword in our hand, with God as our only help, we say, God, would you stir us, would you move us? Let salvation visit this church. Let discipleship and motivation and trusting you visit this church. Lord, we say we reject the pomegranate tree, we reject trusting, just going through the motions, and we say, Lord, would you work on our behalf? Because nothing could stop you when you want to save. Amen.